Open mine eyes that I may see Glimpses of truth thou hast for me Open mine eyes, illumine me Spirit divine Love of my life, I am crying I am not dying, I am dancing Dancing along in the madness There is no sadness like to invite you to a soul-level encounter. Music has an incredible ability to proclaim the soul's language beyond what mere words can speak. That's what we seek as we invite our guests to share their song of the soul. You will hear the music that has charted the steps of their spiritual journey, that has provided a touchstone in the soul's dark night and sung the heart's awe and joy when come to the light. Over the next hour, you will be a witness and companion to our guest's spiritual path and sacred testimony. Welcome to Song of the Soul. Today, for Song of the Soul, you'll be reveling in part two of my interview with Howard Shalowitz, Jewish cantor, or more properly, I think, Hazan, of Beit Shirah in St. Louis, Missouri. You can also hear part one if you go to nerdandspiritradio.org, and in both parts, you'll hear wonderful music and lore of the diverse clans, languages, and tunes of Jews worldwide. Howard is steeped in this rich culture, having served with a number of prominent synagogues across the country and beyond this country, in addition to all his experiences with non-Jewish music, like with the Penn Singers or with the New Orleans Symphony. Get ready for some wonderful music and a lively spirit as we pick up where we left off with Howard Shalowitz on last week's Song of the Soul. Zolshoin Kumen Digaula, that was by Cantor Isaac, and how's his last name pronounced? His name is Cantor Yitzchak Zrebker, Z-H like in Zhivago, so Cantor Yitzchak Zrebker. One thing that we didn't include in that, I know in the full piece, there was some nice accordion intro that you skipped over, and that's one thing I wanted to ask you about. On Shabbat, I think most Jews do not use instrumental accompaniment to their music. So normally when you're performing as part of any of the holy days or, you know, on Shabbat, on Sabbath, 
you have no accompaniment. Is that true? Or are there varieties of Jews or settings where it's okay to have accompaniment? Yeah, the three main branches, I should say, of Judaism, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox, although there are other branches, there's Reconstructionist, there's Renewal, there's Traditional, but of the three branches, Reform Jews have no prohibition to having musical instruments played on any of the days, on, on Sabbath, on festivals, High Holy Days, etc. Orthodox, the general law and the rule for Orthodox is there is no musical instrumentation accompaniment on Sabbath and on the festivals and on the High Holy Days. Although weekdays, it's fine, you can have instruments. On the intermediate days of a festival of Passover or Sukkot, you could have instruments, but on the holy days of any of, of those holidays, no musical instruments. Conservative is split. There are those in the conservative movement who agree with Orthodox that for a couple of reasons, you should not have musical instruments on the Sabbath and festival days. And there are those in the conservative movement who agree with the reform philosophy that it's okay to have. And the general prohibition is based on two things. One of them is that in the time of the, of the Holy Temple, the Beit HaMikdash, that there were musical instruments. And since that time, we are in a period of semi-mourning and not to imitate what was done in the time of the Temple, although there were musical instruments. Uh, we don't have that on the Sabbath and festivals as well. The second one being... If a musical instrument breaks, which was very commonplace in, in olden times, then what are you going to do? If it's a Sabbath or festival, you have to fix it. And that's prohibited under Jewish law of fixing something on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the Sabbath, or the three festivals. So as a general rule, and you're not allowed to carry, so you would have to carry it from the synagogue to wherever you're going, and you're not allowed to do that on, on the Sabbath or on Yom Kippur. So they just, Orthodox and a lot of conservatives just say no musical instruments. However, a choir, absolutely welcome in any of them, in, in reform, conservative, or orthodox. And is a pitch pipe considered an instrument if you want to get the choir started off on the right note? You know, that's something we could have three rabbis on here, and you, they could discuss it for an hour, and you'll never get the right, not the right answer, you'll never get a consensus. The theory of a pitch pipe is this. Can you play one note? in order to get a pitch. Obviously, reform says yes, because you can play instruments. A lot of Orthodox would say no. Conservative, again, would be split. There are those liberal Orthodox and right-wing conservative, I mean of the conservative movement, I don't mean politically, uh, who would say it's absolutely fine. You're not playing a musical instrument. You're just playing one note. And there are those that would say, no, you're still blowing into something like a harmonica, and it's not allowed. The best way to do it is to have a tuning fork. And universally, I think everybody, including Orthodox, will allow for a tuning fork. So usually you'll see cantors or choir directors knock a tuning fork. They're either a C tuning fork or an A tuning fork. And if you want to start on G, just to go down a whole step from the A. Or if it's a C tuning fork, you go up a fifth from the C. Or go down a fourth from the C, however you want to start. But the tuning fork is probably the most universally recognized and accepted one. That was a, a bit of the lore that I had no idea what they actually did. It just occurred to me because in enough of these situations when you're having, uh, on the holy days, there's times when you're dancing in the aisles, but without a band, it's everybody making the music, which has its a special beauty, everybody joining and making the music as opposed to the organ thundering out like it does in a lot of churches. Well, actually, the beauty of singing a cappella is you're not bound by musical instruments playing with you. 
So if, and this has happened to me many times, that on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, after you've just done the first night, the whole first day, the beginning of the second night, now you're, you know, on the second day of Rosh Hashanah and you've had an hour of singing one night, three hours of singing the next day, an hour of singing the second night. There's some vocal fatigue. I mean, operatic singers don't have to go through that. There's always a day between them and resting, and they don't sing for three hours straight. The second day, you might be a little tired. So instead of doing a piece in A, if you want to take it down a whole step, the beauty of singing a cappella, either alone or with a choir without any musical instrumentation, is you could take it down to a G. So you just start wherever you want to start, and the choir, I hope, will follow. Sometimes I've had some bass sections very upset because I start a little bit too low for them, <laughs> but never started too high for the first tenors. Never got a complaint from them. It's great stuff. Well, keep us going with some more music. I'd like to get just a little bit in. Next, there's a what's called a Zmirah, Shabbat Zmirah, or a Sabbath hymn that is called Dror Yikra. And again, just like many prayers, there are different settings to different zmirot. Zmirot is plural for the zmirah or, or the hymn. Dror Yikra is from a Friday night hymn, and this is sung by Amy and Barry Kanarek. It's the kind of a chopped version of a longer hymn, and there are various, various hymns that are sung on Friday night dinner. A traditional Friday night dinner consists of a lot of singing beginning with an introductory prayer called Shalom Aleichem, welcoming the angels into your home for the Sabbath. And then the husband traditionally blesses his wife with the singing of what's called Eshet Chayil, or Woman of Valor, taken from Proverbs. And if they're children, then you bless each of the children. And then the father recites, in a traditional home, recites the Kiddush, or the sanctification over the wine. And then there's the ritual washing of the hands, and then the prayer for the uh, the bread, over the bread for the meal. And then during the course of the meal, you have these various Shabbat Zemirot, or Sabbath hymns, that are sung by everybody, and each one, each hymn may have five, six, seven, ten different musical settings that may have been composed in Eastern Europe, Western Europe, the United States. Some may be more modern, some may be 100 or 200 years old, and everyone just sings along. And this is one of those called Dror Yikra.
Drory Craw, that's by Amy and Barry Hanarek. They're the ones performing it, but today's Song of the Soul is with Howard Shalowitz. He is a Hassan in English, we'd say cantor, obviously of Jewish origin and thoroughness and completeness and more music than you can shake a stick at. <laughs> I'm impressed by the wealth of your musical knowledge. And one other thing that struck me, Howard, you have to sing in really multiple languages. How many of these do you speak? You're a native Chicagoan. What are your languages that you could really speak or understand or converse in or get by in? Well, in in college, they made sure that we were proficient in at least one foreign language, and that was French. So I took French in high school and college. But Hebrew, I started when I was eight years old and went to Jewish day school, studied it at yeshiva, and then a lot of it's just self-taught. You know, when you sing something, you should know what you're singing. So Hebrew, French, and English, I could understand a little bit of German and a little bit of Italian and a little bit of Spanish and whatever country I might be in at the time. Once I start hearing the language, I could pick it up pretty quickly. Ladino, I could translate if I know the songs. Yiddish, I'm pretty good at also. Uh, I could read Yiddish very well. I could understand it when I hear it. The speaking part, I'm a little slow on. My mother actually, every Friday afternoon, writes a note to us in Yiddish. And I'm pretty good with it. And if I don't understand something, I'll call her and she'll, she'll translate it. But just through songs, you learn so many languages. Music is just such a wonderful way of not only being the international language, but also a way of understanding other spoken languages. Is it a normal requirement for a Hassan, for a cantor, to speak several languages, or is just Hebrew the only one that's kind of assumed in there? You know, there are a lot of cantors who, depending on where you live in the world, if you live in the United States, English, obviously, and, and uh, you should know Hebrew because most of the prayers are in Hebrew, although you do have some prayers in Aramaic, which is the language of the Talmud as well. So some of those prayers include what's called the Kaddish, Kol Nidre, which is done in the evening of Yom Kippur. There's a prayer that's done on festivals and on the Sabbath called Brich Shmei. And so there are a few prayers here and there in, in Aramaic. In fact, two of the recitations that we do during the Passover Seder during uh, the, in the Haggadah, the prayer book or the booklet of retelling the story of the Exodus from Egypt, there are two in Aramaic. One is called Halach Ma'anya, which is this is the the poor man's bread or bread of affliction that we say at the beginning. And at the very end, there's a joyous, joyous song called Had Gadya, which is talking about a little goat that our father bought for two zuzim that everybody sings. It really is the hierarchy of things in life with God being above all. So those are two in Aramaic as well. But cantors absolutely should understand Hebrew because you're praying in Hebrew or Aramaic if they're Aramaic prayers. Most cantors, I would say, speak more than just English in the United States. Some may speak two, three, even four languages. All of which come in real helpful down there in St. Louis, right? Well, St. Louis, you'll find a mixture, just like many urban areas. You'll find a lot of Russian Jews. You'll find German Jews still pre-World War II, even those who came after the Holocaust. You'll find not a lot of Italian Jews here, although there's a big Italian community, but not Italian Jews. But you have just, it's such a melting pot, really, in all the larger urban areas in the United States, including St. Louis. 
I was wondering, Howard, if you could say some more words about Beit Shira, the whole synagogue you're connected with. And I read some stuff on your site about it. It struck me that this must be a special offering in the Jewish world. Well, after years and years of going to different synagogues, I'm fortunate enough that I could travel, and I have traveled to synagogues around the world. This is my little plug for Passover. I also lead a Passover services, a Passover Seder and services aboard a cruise ship, and we've been doing that for years. And there's only one kosher for Passover cruise in the world, and that's fortunately the one I'm on, and it leaves out of Fort Lauderdale, and this year it's on Holland, America, so you could check that out. But aside from that, we've gone to Jewish communities on, off the cruise ship, visited in Martinique, we went to St. Thomas, we went to Puerto Rico, we went to, uh, there's one in Aruba. I mean, we've literally been there, and, and I've been around the world, in, in Germany, in Austria, etc. And I've seen what works in synagogues and what people enjoy and what people don't enjoy so much. And finally, after years and years, I decided I was going to form a synagogue here in St. Louis called Beit Shira, means House of Song. And you can go to our website, B-E-I-T-S-H-I-R-A.com. And take a look at a little bit about the lectures that I give and how to contact us, etc. But it really is a synagogue that's based in song and good quality Jewish music. There are no dues, which is something that people really appreciate. We've eliminated the, as I call it, the pay to pray. That many places, look, you have to survive with a building and with clergy and with everything else. But we've been doing pretty well without just, you know, without any dues, just based on contributions that people will give to Beit Shira. And we've had a bonfire here for what's called Lagba Omer, the 33rd day of the counting of the Omer. And we had uh, s'mores that we had over a fire and kids were here and adults were here. We've had services at the Jewish Center for the Aged, which is now called the Cedars, that we've conducted. And we've just had just a great time. We had 30 people at our house a couple weeks ago for Sabbath services and for dinner afterwards. It's just been a, a great, great experience. And we've only been around for, oh, a little over seven months already. Oh, I had no idea that it was that new of an experiment. You mentioned the thing about dues. Is this the equivalent of uh, Christian tithes or is there, I, I don't know how this runs. A lot of synagogues, not a lot, I think all synagogues or the vast majority of them really survive on two things. One are synagogue dues, well, three things, synagogue dues, building fund and contributions. Many of them have dues that are in the hundreds of dollars a year per either person or per family, some are in the thousands of dollars. And then there might be a building fund. And then they may ask you for contributions beyond that. And then they might have fundraisers. So it's a necessity of life for many congregations, but it, it's, I don't think it's a necessity for all. You know, clergymen, obviously, we, we do not take a vow of poverty in the Jewish religion. We just can't have milk and meat and we can't eat pork. Those are our, our restrictions. No, we do have others as well, but we don't take a vow of poverty. But on the other hand, you know, you have to pay your clergy and you have to pay staff to run a synagogue, especially if it's a very large one and there is a building and you have an electric bill and a gas bill just like any other place. But what I wanted to do was donate my time and my skills in Jewish music, lecture on Jewish music, provide services for people who either have a place to go or don't have a place to go, and they like this to make their make it their house of song, their Beit Shirah. 
And you can follow the link from northernspiritradio.org to beitshera.com, where you can find Howard Shalowitz and his programs. He's got a list there of a number of the workshops he offers, presentations. I guess workshop isn't exactly the right word. It's a wealthy diversity of programs that you offer. I wanted to make a a counterpoint. I grew up Catholic, as I've said, and I've been Quaker since I've been an adult. And one thing that people get mystified about when they come to Quaker meeting is I don't think at any Quaker unprogrammed meeting, the kind of style of Quaker that we do, I don't think I've ever heard a fund request as part of our services or what we call meeting for worship. I've had people come here to Eau Claire Friends meeting, where I am, for some months and come to me mystified. They said, I know you have expenses. I know you're renting this place. I know you paid for this and that. But I've never heard any mention of money. Is there a way to contribute? And we say, oh, I think there's a way. (laughs) We don't want to make it too easy for people to give money. Of course, since we don't have hired clergy and frequently we're even meeting in people's houses, our expenses are considerably less. So uh, it's easy for us not to make a big deal out of it. But it's also fun to just watch people be puzzled about the fact that there's never a collection. Right. Sometimes it's, you know, you got to keep the lights on and you have to get the money somewhere. But for now, it's it's just come and enjoy. And services do not drag at Beitshira. And we explain as we go along. If you're a beginner or you're a seasoned synagogue goer, then you both will feel comfortable here. And so I assume you have yourself as Hazan, as Cantor. Do you also have, I assume, a rabbi and other folks uh, that are part of the staff? No. In fact, our bylaws say that the clergyman of the synagogue will be a cantor, period. And from time to time, the cantor may invite a rabbi to speak at the synagogue, but it really goes back to the, old, the old-fashioned the old synagogue where you come to services to pray and not to hear a sermon. They're really, as I said, until about uh, 1850, 1860, with the uh, reform movement coming from Germany, there was no such thing as a rabbi of a synagogue. And the cantor is a co-equal clergy to the rabbi. If you want to come for prayer and come for song with prayer, this is the place to come. In fact, a friend of mine is a is a cantor um, among many of my friends, and he has an expression. He says, nobody leaves the synagogue humming the sermon. But they take away yours all the time that way, don't they? Well, you know, there, there is a loving relationship, and there really should be, and a respectful relationship between the cantor and the and the rabbi. And yes, they do. The congregants take away the melodies with them, taking them and humming them out, and which they should, and, and enhances the service. But I can't tell you how many times I've heard from colleagues of mine who are, are cantors who said, you know, I had this, this prayer, this repetition, this thing, this new thing I learned, and I wanted to share with the congregation, a new song. The rabbi went on for 45 minutes, and he came over to me and said, we're going to have to shorten the service. <laughs> so at that point, it doesn't create for a lot of goodwill between the two. So there has to be a mutual respect and a mutual coordination between the rabbi and the cantor, keeping in mind that many people come to services for the purpose of prayer and not for listening to a sermon, although you know the sermons are informative. And some rabbis, one in particular is a very good friend of mine who I officiate with here, who's an Orthodox rabbi at the, the Cedars that I mentioned before, he will speak about the about five minutes in length about the Torah portion for that week or for that holiday. And he'll give just a real good explanation and, and how it ties into modern life 
and and how you know what exactly does it mean and why we say it in five minutes, which is beautiful. But once you go on for thirty minutes, forty minutes, it's kind of like another rabbi told me: a sermon should be like drilling for oil. If you don't strike oil in the first fifteen minutes, stop boring. Which is a nice little pun. And again, we know that you're the Hazan of puns. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I bet you have more music to share with us. I do. Uh, actually, part of the service, this next piece is uh, part of our liturgy, and it's said on both the holiday of Purim, which is uh, a festival that usually occurs in the month of March, sometimes late, late February. It's found in the book of Esther, which is read on the holiday of Purim, and it's a story of Mordecai and his cousin, Esther, and how they foiled the evil plot of the evil man, Haman, who tried to kill all of the Jews and tried to convince the king to kill all the Jews. And fortunately, Esther and her cousin Mordecai foiled that plot, and uh, the Jews were, were allowed to live. And Haman was hanged along with his ten sons on the gallows that Haman had built for the Jews. Uh, it, it's really it's a really just a, a wonderful part of our Bible, not the fact that some people were hanged, but the part that the story came about that, again, you know, people sought to kill the Jews simply because they were different from other people. And the person who sought to kill them was actually the one who received his, uh, his just reward, if you want to call it that way, but he was the one who was punished at the very end. This song, actually, was written by Ithar Cohen, and it, it was part of the Hasidic Song Festival of 1974 in Israel. This version of Al-Hanithim, it means for the miracles, not only is sung on Purim, but it's also sung every day on Hanukkah. Those are the two minor festivals. People think Hanukkah is one of the major festivals. It's actually, along with Purim, one of the two most minor holidays of the Jewish calendar. But again, they're two very joyous holidays, Hanukkah celebrating religious freedom and Purim celebrating freedom from, really, from being uh, killed. So this is Al-Hanithim, sung by cantor Paul Zim. This was, again, a song from the Hasidic Song Festival of 1974. <laughs>
Nassim, performed by cantor Paul Zim. I want to remind you that you're listening to Song of the Soul of Northern Spirit Radio with me, Mark Helpsmeet, as your host. Listen to our six years of archives at northernspiritradio.org. Find links to our guests and more information on them, and drop us comments. Again, northernspiritradio.org. Today's guest is Jewish cantor Howard Shalowitz of Synagogue Beit Shira in St. Louis. That song, I have to say, Howard, that one made me want to get up and folk dances. Are there specific dances that are adapted for all of these songs? I mean, that one just struck me as one that for sure had to be danced. Well, during the service, although there's choreography during the service, I don't mean dance, but there's choreography of where you bow where sometimes you fully prostrate yourself, which is once on each day of Yom Kippur, uh, of Rosh Hashanah, and actually four times on Yom Kippur. And then there's just the rest of the year just you know bowing certain parts. You take three steps backwards, three steps forward at certain parts of the service. You cover your eyes at a certain part of the service. You gather up the fringes on your prayer shawl at a certain... So there's a lot of choreography going on, but there is no dance during the service. Well, then how about outside the service, or is that one that would not be done outside the service? You know, a lot of the music, this, this very happy, what we call Freilich music, which will lead me to the next song, the Freilich music, or, or happy or joyous music, sometimes they do it without the words, but the melody they might use, and then there's dancing. You could dance a hora, you could dance other types of music to it, so when you hear... You won't have someone sing the words because it doesn't really make sense at a wedding to sing for the miracles and the joyous wonders that God did for us and we, you know, reigned over them, etc. It's not really appropriate to sing the words, but they'll do the music as they're dancing. And, and I should back up by saying one thing. There is a spot in the service that there actually is dancing. 
there are two times during the year. One of them is every Friday night during what's called the Kabbalat Shabbat service, entering or ushering Shabbat. And at the very end of singing this piyut or liturgical poem called Lachadodi, at the end of that, which was written by Shlomo Halevi Alkabitz hundreds of years ago, if it's a very joyous singing of it, the in a in an Orthodox synagogue where the men and women sit separately, the men will dance around in their section and the women dancing in their section. So um, if you have etc. And then at the very end of, the, of it, they just sing on lai, 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 lai. So, and everyone grabs hands and just sings and dances around the synagogue. It, it's a very, very joyous way of doing it. And if you go to the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall in uh, Jerusalem, you'll see various groups uh, doing that to different melodies on uh, Friday night where everybody's dancing around. The other time is what's called Simchat Torah, or Simchas Torah, which usually occurs in October, depending on the Jewish calendar, and it's rejoicing over finishing the Torah. And then we start over, and we go back to the beginning of the book of Genesis, and it's read throughout the year, and then you finish it sometime in October. At the end of the reading of the Torah, and the beginning of the reading of the Torah, on Simchas Torah, there is there's dancing, and there are seven circles that are made in the synagogue called hakafot that uh, we go around the synagogue once and we sing songs and songs. And between each circling of the synagogue or of the sanctuary, between each one, there could be dozens and dozens of songs. It could take half an hour between each one, and we do this seven times. It could be three and a half hours of singing and dancing with the Torahs. That's the time to see singing and dancing together in the synagogue. Well, you know, I've probably been to somewhere between five and ten services and synagogue, and one of them happened to be Simchat Torah. So I did dance in the aisles as part of that. So I just thought maybe that happened all the time, and that's one of the things that made Israeli dance special for me. No, really, it's uh, those are the only times I could think of, unless it's a synagogue that they like to dance even more than that, but... Traditionally, it's really just a Friday night at Kabbalah Shabbat and Simchas Torah. The, the thing about the difference between Judaism and other religions is Judaism is a, a participatory religion for all who are there. It's not, sometimes you'll see that people will go to a, a synagogue or they'll go to a church and they're there just more as observers and someone else does the praying for you and you, you sit there and by means of sitting there and not saying anything, the prayers are done for you. Judaism is a total opposite of that, that if you don't know how to say the prayers by responding with the word amen to the cantor's blessing, or what the cantor says is a blessing to God, it's as if you have just said everything the cantor has said, and prayer is not by closing your eyes and, and not moving your lips. It's not based on thought, it's actually based on prayer, on saying something. So even if people can't read Hebrew, I always encourage people, read it in English. Say something. Don't, you don't have to say the whole page. Just pick a, a sentence or two and pick out just a major theme that you want to say, but as softly as you can or even as loudly as you can. But prayer is vocal in Judaism, and it's something that is expressed by speaking or singing rather than by either through dance or by keeping your mouth closed and just closing your eyes. That's In Judaism, that's not prayer. And before, when I mentioned about something be, being very happy in Freilich, that might lead me to the next piece we're going to hear. 
from the Saskatoon Klezmer Band. I actually was up in Saskatoon years ago, and they gave me a, um, a CD. And this song is called Freilich, which means joyous or happy. And the word klezmer actually comes from the word clay zemer. And a, a clay is a, uh, K-L-A-I, is a utensil or an instrument of some sort. So you could say the uh, a fork, a knife, those are, are kalim. Those are, are instruments of, of eating or utensil of eating. But this is clay zemer. It's a utensil of song or an instrument of song or an instrument of melody. And from the word clay zemer, we got klezmer. And the klezmer was really just a group of wandering, a wandering minstrel, just like in uh, Otto, like in Gilbert Sullivan's Mikado. But they were wandering minstrels who went around the countryside playing various instruments, cymbals, clarinet, woodwinds, percussion, etc., stringed instruments. And this is one example of klezmer music. Most of them do not have words to them. It's kind of like uh, jazz or blues. Just you hear the music and you get the feeling of it. And many weddings just have a band of musicians that will play klezmer music. And this is Freilich by the Saskatoon Klezmer Band. gem of Jewish music for today's Song of the Soul. My guest is Howard Shalowitz, and that song was Freilich by Saskatoon Klezmer Band. I guess handed to you personally by the band. Now, did you get up and dance? Klezmer music is not one that you're supposed to sit to either. I assume you got up and followed for that. Well, I was there for one of those uh, ambassador visits, and it was during the weekend. They gave this to me as a, as a present. So as soon as I got to my car after I landed back in St. Louis, I promptly put it in the CD player, and I would have loved to have danced, but I don't think that would have been safe on the highway. But it's just a, a great band and just very joyous and upbeat. Well, I think we're right down to the end of the time that we've got to spend together, Howard. I think you should pick one more thing to send us out for this Song of the Soul. Okay, the last one is Utsu Eitzah which is actually a little liturgical poem at the end of the Kaddish or the doxology that is sung in Hasidic circles. It's actually a Hasidic song. 
The Otsu Eitsa Vitufar is sung on this by cantor Paul Zim. It's also a song of, of Purim as well that's traditionally done on the holiday of Purim, but many in the Hasidic communities will sing it at the end of each service as a, a way of uplifting for Otsu Eitsa Vitufar. Utsuitsa by cantor Paul Zim, and it was for today's Song of the Soul with Howard Shalowitz. And one thing I noted, Howard, none of these were recordings of you, and yet I assume there must be recordings of you out there. You do an awful lot of singing, performing, and the programs that you lead. There are, but I wanted to show a variety of people and... Maybe on another time I could do just songs that Howard Shallowitz has recorded, which go from anywhere from Gilbert and Sullivan all the way to cantorial music with and without choir to Yiddish to Ladino, etc. But I didn't think your viewers or your listeners rather would would want to hear the same voice over and over. So this way they've got a little smattering of everybody. 
There's an awful lot of good music there. Before we go out, there are some great points that you made about people we don't normally think of as Jewish musicians, but whose music has permeated our society and who are Jewish. You want to toss out the names of some of the great musical artists that people surely know, though they may not know of the Jewish connection? As far as Jewish music, we have uh, Irving Berlin, of course, who is Jewish. We have the writers of Porgy and Bess, of course. You have, you know, the Gershwin brothers. There's actually a book called Great Jews and Music by Daryl Lyman. Among the greats are uh, Harold Arlen. In fact, my middle name is Arlen, but it's A-R-L-A-N. Harold Arlen was the um, one who wrote the music to The Wizard of Oz. Everybody knows the music, but nobody knows that that was written by Harold Arlen. Uh, he passed away a few years ago. There's Ernest Bloch. Uh, Aaron Copeland, Sammy Davis Jr., Neil Diamond, Bob Dylan, Arthur Fiedler, Art Garfunkel, and Paul Simon. We have Vladimir Horowitz, of course, the great uh, pianist. We have Otto Klemperer, great conductor. We have Sergei Kusevitsky, uh, or Serge Kusevitsky. We have Eric Leinsdorf, James Levine, both, of course, great uh, conductors. Gustav Mahler, Barry Manilow. Felix Mendelssohn, although Mendelssohn, there's a whole story about that he abandoned his uh, his Judaism. Mayor Beer, who was, of course, an opera writer. Uh, Robert Merrill, the great baritone of the Metropolitan Opera. Darius Mio. Uh, Jacques Offenbach, great uh, composer and opera writer. Uh, Jan Pierce, who was a Metropolitan tenor uh, at the Metropolitan Opera, who was the brother-in-law to Richard Tucker. And apparently the two of them did not get along too well. Yitzhak Perlman, of course, the great violinist. Uh, Richard Rogers, of course. There are many great cantors of Yosela Rosenblatt and Hirschman and Reutemann and Sirota. Some of the composers who we heard today, Rudolf Serkin, Dinah Shore, Beverly Sills. I mean, these are just some of the great composers and conductors. We have Pinchas Zuckerman, again, a violinist. Kurt Weil, who wrote uh, Down in the Valley, as well as many other things. Uh, Sophie Tucker, Barbara Streisand, Risa Stevens. Isaac Stern, of course, a great violinist. Stephen Sondheim, Sir Georg Schulte. The person who wrote Take Me Out to the Ball Game" was actually a, uh, a Jewish man. I mean, there are so many Jews over the, over the years who have contributed to all aspects of music, not just Jewish music. I mean, God Bless America, White Christmas. I mean, these are all things you know, written by, by Jews, and everybody knows uh, those songs. Um, and then, of course, you have Yiddish songs and Ladino and Israeli songs, and you have conductors and you have composers and you have opera and you have theater and art songs. I mean, all these aspects. I, I look through not only this book, Great Jews and Music, but also just the things I've studied over the course of years, and I thought, if Jews weren't involved in music, just general music, this world would be just so devoid of so much gorgeous, gorgeous music in all aspects, secular and religious. It really is wonderful just studying these people and studying their music and performing their music as well, because music brings joy to people. And if I could tell you a very brief story. Of course. I had a political science teacher in high school. My brother and I would hear from her all the time. And when we were in college, she would send us tapes. That was pre-CD days. She sent us tapes of WFMT in Chicago, which is a classical station, you know, different operas that were done and, and recordings that she had made for us. 
and she would talk to us on the tapes, and we would speak a few times a month, and we'd wish each other happy birthdays on our respective birthdays. And a few years ago, we didn't hear from her on our birthdays, and we kind of wondered what was wrong, and we found out that she was in a, a home in uh, Evanston, Illinois, outside of Chicago, and unfortunately, uh, she has Alzheimer's. You know, we'd call up, and she just wasn't the same person, obviously, and it was getting worse and worse and worse. And my brother and I went to see her last year, and she didn't remember where she taught for 30 years, didn't remember any of the students. I highly doubt she remembered us. In fact, I could almost guarantee she didn't know who we were. But she was very nice and pleasant and glad to see us. And we would talk about things, and she would be easily distracted and just didn't know where she was. And it was just very, very sad because we had been friends for all these years, and she was one of our favorite teachers of all time. And I just said to her, I said, do you still listen to the opera? And, you know, she said, oh, yes. And I just started singing an aria. And I said, you know, do you remember the Pearl Fishers? You once, um, you once sent that duet to me. And I went, oh, du temple And in perfect French, she completed the rest of the duet, both parts. Okay? And I said, do you remember la donna immobile? In perfect Italian, she finished the aria. And we went through this for about three or four different arias in all types of operas, in French, in an Italian. She finished all of them note for note in perfect Italian or perfect French. And I was just amazed that here this woman couldn't remember where she is or who she was and where she taught for 30 years. But music brought her back to something that she had known for years and years perfectly. And we left with that, and I was just amazed at how the human brain works and mind works, how music not only brings joy to people, but also how the music is something that someone would latch on to for years and years, even after the rest of their memory has, has gone. That's so true, so true. I've had similar experiences. Like once I was performing and leading folk dances with a Quaker group called the Friendly Folk Dancers, and we were at a nursing home. I was pushing around a completely non-responsive woman in a wheelchair as we did several dances. And when we came to the Hokey Pokey, this woman, she and she was so apparently not there a moment before, all of a sudden she focused and started singing the words and doing the hand motions. It was absolutely stunning to see her called back that way to consciousness and to presence. Clearly, music is deep in our bones and in our spirits, and that's a big part of why I do this program, why I ask folks to share their song of the soul, and why it is that I'm so thankful that you could come and share the wealth of Jewish music, which is so clearly rooted in your soul. Thank you so much, Howard, for joining me for Song of the Soul. Oh, my pleasure, and thank you for having me. The theme music for Song of the Soul is by Chris Williamson, and it's called Song of the Soul. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and this is a Northern Spirit Radio production. You can listen to this program again, track down the list of songs included, and a whole lot more on my website, northernspiritradio.org. And I invite you to share your Song of the Soul with my listeners. Just contact me via my website. And please, join me weekly for Song of the Soul. You can 